So we'll be, um, last week, Uncle Ray, he finished uh, Romans 15. So I wanted to go back, just a couple considerations from Romans 15 and a couple other portions of the Bible, and we'll get through, Lord willing, at least the names that Paul lists today in the beginning portions of chapter 16. And it won't be a thorough analysis because a lot of the names in here we're not quite familiar with. But uh, we'll, we'll just take about a 10,000 view look at it. So before we begin um, looking earnestly into Romans, I think we're all quite aware of what happened this week, especially if you live in Ohio. Really the, the travesty of the issue one passing where now the language was so nebulous in the bill that you can have an abortion really up until, up until birth, maybe even after birth, depending on the situation. And I think it's disheartening and discouraging for a lot of us in here as Christians, um, generally moral people, when we look and see the evil that's rampant in our society and around the world. And there was plenty of unbelievers, too, that voted no on this issue one, because I think it's, it's common sense, generally speaking, that to kill a child is, is just quite barbaric. Um, but it appears that the majority don't see it that way. So, in context with Romans 15 and 16, I, I want to look at a couple things here in regard to that, because I, I think there's a lot of things at the moment that we can be pessimistic about in our culture and our society, especially with this bill that passed on Tuesday. So, uh, what I want to do here is take a look at uh, the Song of Moses in Deuteronomy 32. Now, it may seem... What does that have to do with Romans? And I think as we'll progress through here, we'll see how there is a big connection with the Song of Moses in Deuteronomy 32 and what Paul is dealing with in Romans, the end of Romans, and what we're dealing with in our own day. And just kind of to set up a a background here is we see all throughout the Old Testament, the pagan practices, especially of the Canaanites, was to sacrifice their children. Time and again in the Old Testament... We see with countries, or uh, excuse me, the peoples in Canaan. We would see it later on, uh, the Carthaginians. Carthage was in modern Tunisia. They were descendants of the people that lived in Canaan. They would sacrifice their children. And it was a practice that was so barbaric, even the Romans in the time of Carthage in about 300 B.C. thought it as a reprobate practice. So we see, we see all throughout the Old Testament... This issue, and even the children of God, the children of Israel, at times, fell into this barbaric practice. And we see here, God's warning to the children of Israel in Deuteronomy 12, 31. You shall not behave thus toward the Lord your God, for every abominable act which the Lord hates, they have done for their gods, for they even burn their sons and daughters in the fire to their gods." So God is warning Israel, you better not fall into what the Canaanites are doing. We see in Psalms 106, the psalmist says this, But they mingled with the nations, that is, Israel mingled with the nations and learned their practices, served their idols, which became a snare to them. They even sacrificed their sons and their daughters to the demons, and they shed innocent blood, the blood of their sons and their daughters." whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan, and the land was polluted with their blood. 
Even the psalmist recognizes the tragedy of these events committed not by the Canaanites, but by Israel and their sacrifice of their sons and daughters to these pagan gods who were no more than demons. So let me ask you this. Is in the 21st century, we often think of ourselves as so much better than every other group of people that ever existed. But we know with this issue that passed on Tuesday, we're really no different. Now, that doesn't mean we in and of ourselves practice it, but our culture does, our society does, and our government allows it. So is what we're seeing culturally and socially, is it actually new? Has this not happened before, even amongst the children of Israel? I would say it has. So let's look here for a minute. And again, we will connect this with Romans. As you can kind of see this verse here on the board, I think is applicable to our situation. So let's uh, briefly turn to Deuteronomy chapter 32 and look at the Song of Moses. And I would encourage you this week and the weeks that follow, uh, really read this song that Moses publishes towards the end of his life. It's a beautiful song if you take it in the right context. So here's just a brief background. This song was composed by Moses towards the end of his life. So God had told Moses that he was not able to see the promised land because he struck the rock with his staff when the water came out. So God told Moses, you're going to die. Joshua's going to take over for you. But before you die, this is what I want you to do. I want you to compose a song for the children of Israel to memorize for future generations. And we've seen this song of Moses, you would kind of think it may be a joyful song, a happy song, especially if it's a song that Moses wants to leave the children of Israel after he dies. But as we see here, that's not the case. So we're going to skip the first four verses here real quick, and we're not going to look at it as a whole. We're just going to pick out some verses. So skip the first four verses. Let's look at verse 5 here real quick. Verse 5 says, and this is talking of Israel in the future. Moses says this, they have corrupted themselves, they are not his children because of their blemish, a perverse and crooked generation. Verse 16 and 17, they provoked him to jealousy with foreign gods, with abominations they provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons and not to God, to gods they did not know, to new gods, new arrivals. That your fathers did not fear. So as you can see here, Moses is looking into the future. Prophesying what's going to happen in future generations to Israel. The people of God. Verse 19 reads this. And when the Lord saw it, he spurned them. What does that word spurn mean? God handed them over to themselves to do the wicked desires and lusts. Of their heart. So even the children of God, after all of the marvelous wonders that they had seen, as we're reminded in Hebrews chapter 3 and 4, the generation in the wilderness had seen all the wonders, the majesty, they saw the presence of God on Mount Sinai, and what does it say? They perished in unbelief. They died in unbelief, and what Moses is saying here. In just a few short years, children of Israel would, complete, uh, would, would commit apostasy and turn away from God. They would sacrifice their children. They would kill their children. 
They would, as it were, abort their children on the altar of the Baals. The remainder of the verses, we won't look through them, but are of the same exact language. It is a pessimistic, dark, and troubling song that Moses presents here. In essence, they rebelled. And we look at, if we read the book of Joshua, the generation of Joshua was on a whole faithful. And it says, after Joshua died, when he was 110 years old, all of the elders and the leaders that had been contemporaries with Joshua, the children of Israel, obeyed God up until they died. And we read this in Judges 2.10. All that generation also were gathered to their fathers, and there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord, nor yet the work which he had done for Israel. Judges 18.30, listen to this. And I think uh, Cousin Jordan, he spoke about this a couple weeks ago when I wasn't here. And he may have touched on this. But listen to this verse. The sons of Dan set up for themselves the graven image. And Jonathan, the son of Gershom, the son of Manasseh, he and his sons were priests to the tribe of the Danites until the day of the captivity of the land. Who was Gershom? He was the son of Moses. Who was this Jonathan? He was the grandson of Moses. It's speculated that they don't, the, the writer of, of Judges does not actually come out and name Moses as the grandfather of this idolatrous priest, Jonathan, out of sheer terror and horror. Manasseh is kind of like uh, Rick or Richard. In our culture, it's almost like a pseudonym. But the grandson of Moses was an idolater in Israel. Isn't that striking to think about? A hundred years after Moses passed away, Israel wandered off in rampant unbelief, committing the most abhorrent, abominable things in the eyes of God. If Moses had cause for pessimism in this song, concerning the people of God, Israel, how much more should we be full of pessimism when it comes to our culture and our country? We should have all the more. We read in the New Testament, Colossians 1.21... Although you were formerly alienated and hostile in your mind, engaged in evil deeds. That's the natural heart of man, regardless of where we are. Alien and enemies of God. Titus 1.15, to the pure all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their mind and their conscience are defiled. Defiled. Knowing the human conditions, the events that happen in our country and our state this week are no surprise to us. And again, there was plenty of unbelievers who know that life in the womb is precious. Who know that a child is made in the image of God at conception. But the culture as a whole was completely lost. But it's not a surprise to us why. Because it's the human condition 
It's the same thing that happened to the children of Israel 3,500 years ago. And I think as Christians, as we look societally and culturally, we have every reason to be pessimistic. Why? Because we know the true heart and soul of man is desperately wicked. We have every right to be pessimistic about the future. Now, if I stop it right there, and I said, oh, it's the end of it, yes, we would continue in our pessimism. But that's not the case, as as we see here with Romans. I've never really enjoyed the term optimistic. And let me give you a reason why. uh, uh, Psychology Today says of optimism, it's the belief that the outcomes of events or experiences will generally be positive. Optimism oftentimes is a humanistic term. It's a concept that everything will work out in the end. And generally speaking, human civilization continue, societies fall, new ones come up. So that's generally a true principle. But we as Christians know that the world is progressively and progressively getting further and further away from God, obviously until the time of Christ comes. We often hear this term in our society, dealing with optimism, there's hope in science. Science can save us. There was a dog commercial, or a dog food commercial I see on YouTube so often, they made like this premium food for this dogs, for this dog, and they said science did that. That's idiotic. That's idiotic. Science didn't do that. Someone created that. But that's the type of thinking we now have in our culture. Science did that. There's hope in science. No, that's rank humanism. There is no hope in humanity. At the end of the day, why? Because we have the Word of God that tells us what the natural heart of man is. How do we connect this with Romans? I can't can't remember who the theologian was, but he said this, as a Christian, I'm not optimistic, but I'm hopeful. I'm not optimistic, but I am hopeful. As we look here, as I wrote on the board... Romans 15, 13. We'll turn to Romans here. I couldn't help as my uncle was talking through this last week and just given the events. It seems the darkness that surrounds us. Paul says this in Romans 15, 13. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. That you may abound, not in optimism, that things in human terms will get better, but in the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. And going back to the song of Moses, a full 88% of the song is about darkness, is about the future apostasy of Israel. But Deuteronomy 32, 39, the Lord says this through Moses, See now that I, I am He. I am He. That's the hope that each and every one of us have in here. 
is that Jesus Christ is sovereign, that he rules on the throne. Was he any less in charge this Tuesday when issue one passed, when infanticide is now legal than he is today? There's great mystery. Don't get me wrong. Or don't, don't, don't try to say that I have all of the answers. But what do we know? Is that I, I am he, was the same God who watched Israel turn their back upon him. And he's the same God that rules over us today. Again, I don't have all of the answers. But we do have hope in Christ as Christians. Now I could close my Bible. That's all we have to say. There's hope in Christ. But there is more to say. We have the God of the future by which we stand secure in the eternal sanctuary in heaven, not by our own power, but by the power of the Holy Spirit, as we see here. The power of the Holy Spirit. This produces faith where we then have peace and joy no matter the travails or trials that come before us personally, as a family, as a church, as a society. We have peace and joy. And I think this transitions perfectly to the rest of 15 in chapter 16. Is what do we know of the Apostle Paul? Is he was one of the most astounding scholars and theologians in his day. A double PhD, some say, by the time he was 21. And yet, when he was on the road to Damascus... The Lord knocked him off the donkey that he was riding and said, Saul, you are going to suffer many things for my name's sake. And he lists the number of beatings and lashings and imprisonments and the shipwrecks and all of the trials that the Apostle Paul went through and was going through as he's writing this book of Romans. And yet he is able to say... Here, in verse 13, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. That you may abound in hope. Not just be full, not just be temporarily hopeful, but abounding, overflowing in the hope of Christ. It's remarkable when you think about it. All of us in here in our personal lives... We have nothing in comparison to what the Apostle Paul went through. Nothing. So how is it that he can abound in hope, but then we're not able to? No, we are able to with the power of the Holy Spirit. Another thing hope does is it helps us in the future. As we see in verses 14 to the end of chapter 15, Paul was hopeful for the future. He was hoping that he would be able to leave Corinth at some point and go visit the Church of Rome. He was hopeful that eventually he may be able to make it. Whether he did or didn't, we don't really know 100%. But he was hopeful that he would be able, Lord willing, to go to Spain. So another thing hope does for us is that it gives us hope for the future. Now, the Apostle James does warn us that we're not supposed to take tomorrow for granted. There is a difference between being hopeful and also having a uh, thinking that tomorrow is guaranteed. 
That's not the case with the Apostle Paul here. In fact, you see the word hope used multiple times in this as he's writing a letter to the Romans. But what's interesting for Paul's sake is that he did eventually make it to Rome. But how did he make it to Rome? He was a prisoner. Do you think when he was writing this letter in Corinth that he would have any ideas that, oh yeah, you know, I will go to Rome someday, but it would be in chains. Do you think that was the case? I don't think Paul had any idea. But what do we know is that God worked all of that together for good. He used the accusation of the Jews and the other people around Jerusalem and Israel of Paul being a blasphemer. He used all of that for Paul to eventually make his way to Rome. Not necessarily as a free man, but in chains. So as we stand here today, we we can have hope. Even if we see all the dark around us, we have hope that God's in control of absolutely everything. No matter if the police come in here and whisk us away at some point in the future, if we're all beheaded for the sake of Christ, we have hope. As Paul had hope. As these people had hope. As the first, second, third, fourth century martyrs who were fed to the lions, who were beheaded, who were burned alive. As each one of them had hope. Hope in something greater. Greater in Christ. So before I, uh, I know that was a lot of information we went through quite quickly, but does anyone have any comments or questions before we continue? We'll start with verse, uh, chapter uh, 16 here. Well, thank you. I'm a financial guy, so you need to explain that to me. <laughs> but that's very good. I think uh, St. Elizabeth, they have another one. The universe of you. We see it seething in our culture, in our society. Even We're even polluted with it. The selfishness that really spews forth from us. Anything else? Yes, Dad. <laughs> he does. Anything else? I would use the term hopeful. <laughs> I think op- optimism carries a different connotation than hopeful. But that, fair point. All right. <clears throat> well, let's continue on here. And as I said, I, I don't think we'll go name for name through this chapter 16 because there's a lot of these people that are only mentioned here and we don't have a great abundance of background information, as it were, for who they are. But nonetheless, what's interesting is their name is 
still written in the word of God, which will be engraved in heaven for all of eternity. So there's some significance to each of these names in here. So don't think for a second, I'm not saying they're not important, but there's just not a lot of information that we have uh, regarding them and who they are. So let me go ahead and read the first couple of verses here. I'll read down through verse 6. I commend to you Phoebe, or Phoebe, our sister, who is a servant of the church of Sancria, that you may receive her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints, and assist her in whatever business she has need of you. For indeed she has been a helper of many, and of myself also. Greet Priscilla, or excuse me, Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ, who risked their own necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but also all of the churches of the Gentiles. Likewise, greet the church that is in their house. Greet my beloved Apenetus, who was the first fruits of Achaia to Christ. And let me put a side note here, is I will probably butcher some of these names. So bear with me. If you think they're pronounced differently, then just let me know afterwards and we'll correct it next week. So we see here, in the first couple of verses, a lady by the name of Phoebe. This name is likely a Greek name. It is suggested by the structure of this sentence that you may receive her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints, that she was actually the bearer of this letter from Corinth to Rome. So it appears that this lady was the uh, ambassador, as it were, for the Apostle Paul to the church at Rome. And we see this word here, servant. This is just a, a passing note. Who is a servant of the church in Sancria. Now this word servant means one who executes the commands of another, especially of a master, a servant, attendant, a minister. And oftentimes in the New Testament, Paul will use this word servant to mean deacon. So it may have been that she was a deaconess in this church that Paul was at. But it's not concrete. Maybe he was just using the word as a servant, as a helper, as it were, of him to go to Rome. So it could have been that she was a deaconess in this church. We see here that they are currently in this uh, church in Sancria, which I think that's actually the proper pronunciation. But Sancria was a harbor. It was a town that the city of Corinth had control over. So Corinth was kind of inland about five miles from this place. And this Sancria, this town, was a very wealthy town. A lot of goods that would come from the eastern Mediterranean would stop here. They would travel over Greece, and then they would go to the western port, and then they would eventually go to Rome. So it was a fairly well-to-do town. And we also see this uh, specific city in Rome, uh, Acts uh, 18, verse 18. Paul's at the place again. I'll just read this one verse. So Paul, still remaining a good while, then he took leave of the brethren and sailed for Syria. And Priscilla and Aquila were with him. He had his hair cut off at Sancria, for he had taken a vow. So this is where the Apostle Paul at this town city port took a vow and had his hair cut. And then we see here in verse 3... Greet Priscilla and Aquila. And these are probably, from a non-apostolic standpoint in the New Testament, one of the more well-known couples that we see. 
And I always get him confused. And I made a note of it here myself. Priscilla is the wife. And Aquila is the husband. And these two are well known through many of Paul's ministries in the Mediterranean area. And just a couple observations of them. We won't look at specific passages. But they were industrious. We see their names mentioned in regards to activity. They were hospitable. So we see here in in Romans, and we also see at the end of 1 Corinthians 16, 19, we see that they hosted a church in their house. They could also teach. And why do we know and how do we know that they were able to teach or at least instruct is because Apollos, who was from Alexandria, was reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews, but his information was not 100% up to par. So what does it say in Acts, uh, what is it, Acts 20? Uh, excuse me, Acts 18, it says, Priscilla and Aquila took him aside and properly instructed him in the ways of Christ. So they were also able, as a tag team, as it were, to teach. And also, they risked their lives for the gospel, as we see that on countless times, as they were constantly giving aid and help to Paul, and they were an integral part of Paul's church ministry. And then verse 7 here. Yeah. Yes, they were. Yes, I forgot to mention that. Yeah. 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 And uh, I, think it, I think it was Acts 18 when Paul was staying with them. As you said, he was making tents with them. So, yeah, they, they weren't just, you know, doing nothing. They they were uh, definitely working with their hands and being productive. And it says, Greet Mary, who labored much for us. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my countrymen and my fellow prisoners, who are of note among the apostles, who also were in Christ before me. These two, again, appear to be a husband and wife. And from their names, they appear to be Gentiles, non-Jews. And at the end of verse 7 kind of interesting here, who are of note among the apostles. Note among the apostles. Now, reading through some commentaries, there are some people who speculated that Paul applied the title of apostles to these two, but that doesn't seem to be it. That seems to be that before Paul was a believer, before he was a Christian, these two, this husband and wife, were of note, or they had a great reputation amongst the apostles of Jesus Christ. And again, they were in Christ before Paul was. Verse 10. Let me just go ahead and read through this. Greet Amplius, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, or Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ. And Stychus, my beloved. Greet Apelles, approved in Christ. Greet those who are of the household of Aristobulus. Aristobulus, I think that's how you say his name. The New Geneva Study Bible just makes this comment. This may be the grandson of Herod the Great and friend of Emperor Claudius. So we kind of see this theme through the New Testament that it wasn't necessarily that these dignitaries were believers, but that there were servants and people in the household of these dignitaries that were believers. And that's what it appears to be here. Verse 11, Greet Herodian, my countrymen. Greet those who are of the household of Narcissus, who are in the Lord. Again, we see of the household. 
The New Geneva Study Bible says this of Narcissus, perhaps to be identified with the aid of Claudius, who was forced to commit suicide by Agrippina after Nero's ascension. So again, it appears another important dignitary in and around Rome has a household full of believers in Christ. And these were probably most likely servants. Verse 12, Greek Tryphena and Tryphosa who labored in the Lord. And these two are probably sisters of one another. They both appear to be uh, Greek and female in name. And then we see here, greet the beloved Persis, who labored much in the Lord. Now this Rufus, this we'll take a minute to look here real quick. Verse 13, greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and his mother and mine. First and foremost, chosen in the Lord. We don't really see that anywhere else in here. Chosen in the Lord. Put yourself in Rufus's shoes here. I think, at least if I was to receive this letter from the Apostle Paul, if it said, Ty, chosen in the Lord, that would make you feel pretty good. That would give you hope. But here we see this Rufus. There's another time where this name is mentioned. It's in Mark 15, 21. Let me go ahead and read it. They pressed into service a passerby coming from the country, Simon of Cyrene, and quotes here, the father of Alexander and Rufus to bear his cross. So a lot of people speculate that this Rufus, his father was Simon, the one who carried the cross of Christ. So wouldn't it kind of make sense here if Paul is saying chosen by God, and think of it as it were if you're Simon, you're just a random passerby in the crowd. And the Roman soldiers pull you out and say, carry this cross. Now, kind of just playing it out here, speculating, is Simon probably carried the cross to Calvary. And you would probably think he stayed around to watch to see what would happen. And probably in that time period was in the general area when the ruckus came that Christ rose from the dead. So it may have been through all of this that this Simon came to faith because he carried the cross of Christ. Now, in worldly terms, that's a coincidence. But in Pauline terms and in our terms, that's not. That's the sovereign hand of God. And it may have been that because his father, Simon, carried the cross, that's how Rufus heard the gospel of Jesus Christ along with his brother. And that will kind of make sense with the language here we see. And then also see what Paul says here, and his mother and mine. Again, it signifies that Paul had a special bond or a special relationship with Rufus's mother, maybe Simon, or, uh, yeah, Simon's wife, where she cared for Paul in certain circumstances and situations. And then we read in verse 14 and 15, Greet Asrinkitus, Phlegon, Hermes, Petrobus, Hermes, and the brethren who are with them, greet Philogus and Julia, Nerus and his sister, Olympus, that's a Greek name for sure, and all the saints who are with them. And verse 16, greet one another with a holy kiss. The churches of Christ greet you. So just a couple closing thoughts. As again, I think we can see the hope Paul has because he individually names these people that he hopes to see eventually. We can also see that in the ancient world, uh, women generally weren't looked highly upon. 
And in this letter, Paul is making specific mention of women. And we also see he's making mention of Jew and Gentile. Oftentimes, there was strife, but we ultimately see the peace that Christ brings to Jew, Gentile, woman, man, every race and creed throughout the world. So there's just a couple thoughts, combinations there for the, for the names that Paul lists. And uh, Lord willing, I think verses 17 to the end of the chapter, which is verse 27, we'll finish next week. So does anyone have any comments or questions before we close? All right, well, if it's anything uh, too detailed, just see me afterwards, and uh, we'll have a discussion then. Thank you.